great to see you, whether, like Andrew said, if you're here in the room or you're watching online or you're listening at some point later, we're thankful that you've chosen uh, to spend part of your time of your week just worshiping and learning along with us. If we've never met or we haven't met many times, my name's Corey and I have the honor and privilege of being lead pastor here at GFC. I'm excited to jump into week two of a sermon series we're calling Lonely. And the tagline is, uh, what it takes to know and be known. And so one of the things that's difficult about this, right, you're starting off your year, we're excited, we turn the page on something, and then we start talking about loneliness that might seem a little bit like of a downer. But the opportunity is to say, let's look at what's going on in our culture and say, how do we track with this? What do we do with it? How do we look at God's word? And what does he have to say about how we uh, interact with each other and what we do with this idea of loneliness? And by the way, we started this conversation last week, right? So if you missed last week, or you just weren't able to be, I know the weather was a little dicey or whatever, it would be good for you to go back uh, and watch that first week or listen to that first week wherever you get your podcast. I'm going to give you a quick update here as we dive in, uh, but go back and check that out so you can kind of get the rest of that conversation and, and get more informed on where we're, where we're going. But we started with this simple question, why are we so lonely? And one of the really interesting things about this is we live at a time that we are more connected than ever. I could call you, I could FaceTime you, I could DM you, I could Facebook you, I could all of these different things. And no matter where you are around the world, we could get connected to somebody. And we could even get connected to somebody face-to-face, and it doesn't cost any more than if I just picked up the phone and called you. And yet, because of that, because of our connectivity and the opportunities to connect, we find ourselves more and more disconnected. And so the question is, what do we do with that? Because none of that's actually wrong. It's not bad that those things exist, but it impacts us in a certain way, and it impacts us in a spiritual way. And so how do we process that? And I gave you this quote uh, last week. I'll show it to you again. Uh, A woman named Elena Rankin wrote an NPR article in 2019, and she said, more than three in five Americans report being chronically lonely, and that number is on the rise. The key here is, what date was that written in? (laughs) 2019. So we don't have to go back. You go back four years ago. What happened in 2020? I don't know, right? We all know what happened. And when you think about that stat being what it is, three in five Americans are chronically lonely, and that's 2019. And then everybody separates, and we can't talk, and we can't connect, and we can't go to church, and we can't go to school, and we can't go to work, and we can't all this stuff. And then whatever you think about that, but the reality is it changed the way we interacted. And now more employers are happy with people working at home, and more people are used to saying, hey, I'm not feeling so great. I'm just going to stay home. I was thinking about the other day a time when I was working somewhere else. I've had a lot of jobs over time, but just I was really sick and I came to work and they looked at me and said, you need to go home. Most of us, if that's the idea now, we would be like, well, we, we're just going to call in. We're going to say, I'm not sick. And everybody would go, thank you, right? Thank you for not spreading your germs. But it was a different time. And so now all of a sudden things change and we're used to being apart. And if three and five was the case in 2019, we would only assume that, and it was on the rise then, it would continue to rise. Now, as we started to have this conversation last week, we went to Genesis 1, looking at verses 26 and 27. And verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. And they will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals in the earth and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. In verse 27, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female he created them. And the, and the thing that we pointed out here is when, he, when God is talking here, he says, let us, let us. And it's a weird thing because everywhere else in creation, God said, it just says, it's singular, right? God made it and it was good. And then we get to this point and it's us. And, and we think about this fact that God existed in community. And so what we know to be true about us is this, that as those who bear his image, we were created to exist in community. 
And the way we want to start to think about loneliness is, is an indicator. When you're hungry, you know what to do. You go get a snack or you have dinner or whatever you're going to do. You're thirsty. You go grab water or you get coffee or whatever. When we're lonely, it's an indicator that we're missing something. And I'm not going to dive back into what we talked about necessarily last week. That's why I want you to go back and listen to it. But it impacts us physically when loneliness becomes something that's a normal part of our life. And so it's not necessarily normal that we would, usually when we go through sermon series, we would look at scripture and say, okay, now we're going to look at it. But at times, it's good for us to look at things in culture and say, what does God's word have to say about it? And when a lot of us, especially people that are just even just out, not connected to the church world, people in general are just saying, we feel lonely. We don't know what to do with this. So much so that the Surgeon General is looking at it. And we look at our lives and we look at the scripture and we say, we know what to do about it. We have a responsibility to do something about it. And the other thing is, loneliness isn't just something that exists outside of church world. Loneliness exists in church world, too. Many of us have felt lonely at different times and and trying to figure out what to do with that and going through different life stages or whatever may be the case. And so here's where I want to focus our time today. And I alluded to this a little bit last week. I said, as we start to lean into this conversation and we really start to dig in, okay? So I I set the table for us last week. We're going to dig in a little bit this week. Pastor Andrew's going to dig in a little bit more this week. Okay, here's what I know is going to happen. The more we dig, the more we're going to feel like, "Ah, I don't know if this is worth it. I know this is going to happen because it's already happened to me. This is is stuff that's like, if we're going to be who God has called us to be in community, and we're going to look at that a little bit today from God's example, if we're going to do that, it's going to take a lot of work. Honestly, it's going, to come, it's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take a lot of getting together and saying, we're going to do this even though it is not the convenient thing to do. And so I'm, I'm setting the table for that, saying if we're going to be willing to do this, and what I think is obedient to Scripture, we're going to have to do some work. And this is what I know is true. Okay, let's just put this on the table. If God's plan requires community, Satan will always pursue disunity. Whenever there's, whenever there's a time where God sets forth a plan, and you go, this is the way that it's supposed to go. You're supposed to do this, and then this, and then this, and this. This is the way of life, right? God does this with marriage. God does this with other things. This is, this is my framework of how this is supposed to process and what this is supposed to be. Satan is going to come into that framework and say, I'm going to try and ruin that plan as much as I can. He's going to get to the root of it and say, I'm going to take this apart because I know if God's plan succeeds or his framework is upheld, good things are going to happen. So I'm going to get in and I'm going to drive at this and try and cause people to part. And if we want to look at this really in our culture, we know that if we are drawn to not like somebody else, or we're drawn to draw lines in the sand, or we're drawn to look at somebody and say, I am not on the same team as you. That drives some sort of like excitement. People will jump on to be mad at somebody. Like, yeah, let's get that person or let's be against that or whatever. I'm not going to say anything about you Cowboys fans in the room right now, right? So there's things like that where we just get like, I just got one of these from an Eagles fan. I'm like, yeah, that works. Okay, so uh, we will look at things like that and there's like a rallying cry almost. We get excited about it. It is, it is almost fun to draw the line and say, I'm against you sometimes. And in some cases, like where you're getting revved up for a game or whatever, like that's great. But in other situations, it's like when we draw lines in the sand, we want to be disunified from people. You Usually that's not a good thing. And it's not actually something that we see in scripture a lot. Jesus would say things to people that he disagreed with, but they were always invited to the table. And so when we look at that and we say, okay, what does it mean to be disunified? And why, does, why is that something Satan would leverage? 
it's because he wants us to be disconnected. And I would even go so far as to say that Satan wants us to be lonely. That when we are disconnected from people and we're not in a biblical community, we will make decisions that aren't great. We will not have people holding us accountable. We will not have people checking in on us. It is a bad place to be, and sin can exist there. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at, we're going to go to John 16 and 17. We're not going to read all of John 16 and 17, but we're going to read some chunks of it. So we're going to have a a few chunks of scripture here. Um, We'll have the verses on the screens for you, but also on the back of your next steps card, you can scan the QR code or what's on the screen right there. You can go to our website and uh, check out the follow along tab. Um, It'll have all the verses and all the notes and you can, uh, you can send those notes to yourselves. You can ask a question, you can submit a prayer request, all that kind of stuff. It's a great place to go and follow along with today. And even if you're watching live at home, you can do that as well. It's there for you right now. So John 16, starting in verses five through seven. Uh, Jesus is talking. He says this, but now I'm going away to the one who sent me and not one of you is asking where I'm going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. In fact, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. So here's, here's, I just want to set the stage for this. Okay. Jesus has not died yet. Okay. So this is pre-crucifixion. And so he's explaining to his disciples that he's going to have to leave. And they're not happy about this. So much so that Jesus says, you're not even asking where I'm going. You're just upset that I'm leaving. And we've probably been in this situation too, right? Maybe you've had a boss you really liked, or you had a teacher you really liked, or a coach you really liked, or a pastor, or whatever. And they were going to leave, and you felt like, oh no, right? I don't want them to leave. I, I work well with them. They do a good job. I'm not fearful of that. Like, they value me, whatever. And you know they're going to leave. And, and what's the fear? I mean, someone after them could come into your space and be even better. But the fear is whoever comes next is not going to be great. And so you get upset about that. You're fearful. And so that's where the disciples find themselves. They're worried. Jesus is leaving. They don't want him to leave. They've seen him do amazing things. And they've still kind of got this idea that Jesus is going to overthrow and make everything work for them. And they're going to ride into the sunset with him. Jesus knows that's not happening. So he's warning them. And he says, if I don't go to the one who sent me, I can't send the advocate. And that advocate is the Holy Spirit. By the way, just a little side conversation. If anyone says to you that the Trinity or the idea of God in three persons is not in Scripture, just go right to John 16 and 17. Okay? Because Jesus here in this passage, in these just couple verses, he says, I have to go. He's, He's identifying himself. Obviously, he's the one talking. He has to go to the one who sent him, and he talks about the advocate. So we've got three, and we're going to see this come out in the rest of this passage too. So going on in verses 8 and 9, it says, And when he comes, meaning the advocate or the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Verses 10 through 11, Righteousness is available because I go to the Father, and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. Verses 12 to 13. There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. Verses 14 and 15. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. 
So in this passage, and we'll keep going to 17 in a minute, but in this passage, what we see is Jesus identifying the three persons of the Trinity and giving kind of a job description. So we know Jesus was sent to earth to live life as a human, live a sinless life, die a sinner's death, and then rise again. That was his portion of the job. And the Father was the orchestrator of of all of this. And so the Father sent the Son so that this would be the case. And then we get this other entity, right? The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, who then is going to come after Jesus. And he's going to indwell believers. So if we've decided to follow Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit in us. And his job is to convict and help us know the truth and everything. So you've got these three persons of the Trinity. Again, don't think too hard because your head will hurt. But three persons in this unit... That are all working together. And there's this word there that Jesus said that, that they would glorify one another. That they would work in unison together to fulfill the plan, the mission that they have for people, right? This plan of salvation. And that in doing so, working together in unison, that they would glorify each other. And we get this picture of this unity that happens. And then going to chapter 17, starting in verses 1 and 2. It says, after saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. Again, he continues this cycle. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you, gave, you have given him. Verses 3 to 5. And this is, the, this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. We're going to jump down to verses 13 and 14. It says, Now I am coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in the world so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. Verses 15 and 17. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. So I want to pause here just for a second and say, we, we know now Jesus is praying, right? So he's still in the presence of his disciples. He's just had this conversation and he says, okay, now I'm, now I'm praying. And, and we get this glimpse into what's going on. John gives us this prayer that he wants us to know. We'll see why in a minute. But what does Jesus pray for? He says, I'm not asking you, he's not asking God to take us out of the world. Wouldn't that be nice? Like if we just decided to follow Jesus and all of a sudden instantaneously, it's like, whoop, now we're in heaven. No more struggle, no more tears, no more frustration, no more sickness, all of it. Like just go. But then what's the problem? Well, if we all just disappeared as soon as we know Jesus, there's nobody else to tell anybody else about Jesus, right? So there's a reality here that we, ha- we stick around and we, we deal with this. And Jesus says, I'm not asking God to take, me, take us out of the world. But he says, but I am asking that God would keep us safe from the evil one. So the first thing Jesus prays for is to keep us safe. Why? Because he knows as he's having this conversation about the unity that God has within the Trinity... And then he's going to ask us to do the same thing. We'll see it in a minute. He goes, I know that Satan's going to attack that. I know he's coming after it. Because Satan hates anything, any system, any process, any good thing God has set up, Satan wants to ruin. And so Jesus prays that he would, that God would keep us safe from the evil. And then going on in verses 18 to 19, says, 
Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. Verses 20 to 21. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Now, anytime I get to a passage like this, I make sure we stop and realize this. So if you're not paying attention to me, whatever, like, come back for a second, okay? Because the first part of this passage is really important. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. This is how we look at scripture and go, this means us. Jesus is praying for you and me in this passage. That's, what he, that's who he's praying for. He knows our names at this point. He knows that we're going to be, he knew we were standing here today, right? He prays for us in this moment. And what does he pray? It's a big prayer. This is not Jesus praying and saying, I pray that they would have a great life and it would be awesome. He says, I pray that they would be one. This is a big prayer. In fact, this is one of the things that when people outside the church look at the church, they go, you don't believe this. Because it, whether it's it, it, like in, inner, uh, relational or whatever, we have struggles with each other. People that are outside the church, they'll look at us and they'll go, so why are there 18,000 different kinds of churches out there? And, and it, the answer is just because we've believed little things differently. But this idea of being one is far off to many people. And Jesus says, I pray that not only they would be one, they, that we would be one, how? As the Father and I are one. That's a big prayer. And then he gets down to the bottom and he says, and may they be in us so the world will believe you sent me. Here's what that says to me. If we do not reflect the unity of the Father, people aren't going to want to listen to our message. And Jesus says, I'm praying for that. That you all, anybody who believes this message forever, would be one and that you would be one with Jesus and the Father at the same time. This is why we start off this conversation, we go, this is hard. Like, this isn't some lollipop thing that we can do. Just, just be better at this. This is like all in. Like, because we all know if we're honest with, it, with ourselves, we'll get to that conversation. If we're honest with ourselves, we know this is, this is, dip, this is next to impossible. Like, it would be easy to look at this and go, I can't be one with those people. And yet, this is what Jesus prayed for us and asked us to be. And here's, here's what I understand about biblical community from this idea, that biblical community serves and uplifts one another. When we look at the way that the Trinity interacts with each other, that, I, that idea of glory is thrown around, right? Now, we're not called to worship each other or anything like that, but like that we would serve and uplift. And if we look at the way God interacts with us, it's, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but to look at God and to look at Jesus and look at the Holy Spirit and say, they serve us an odd thing to say, but think about it. We were separated from God. Why? Because of our choices. What does God the Father do? He orchestrates this plan to save us. He could have said, tough luck, you're out. But he orchestrates his plan. He sends his only son to pay that price. Then what does the son do? He gives up his relationship as it is with his father in heaven, right? He even says, I want to come back to the glory I knew before the world began. He gives up that, he comes to earth, is born as a baby, and then he lives a sinless life. And he washes the feet of the people he's going to die for. He serves us. And then the Holy Spirit comes and says, 
I'm going to be the truth teller, right? I'm going to convict. I'm going to work. I'm going to make you guys grow. There's, there's a servanthood in this. And when we look at that and we say, this is how God decided to save us, we should look at each other and say, this is how I'm supposed to serve you. I want to uplift and serve you because that's what God has given me an example of. And yet this is, this is difficult. And in, I want to jump now to Romans 12, verse 3, because it's going to, again, this is like digging deeper and deeper. Paul gets this. Romans 12, verse 3 says this, Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. So here's what's easy. We talk about, okay, God came and Jesus served and God served me in some sense, right? Dying for me. That was, that was giving to me something I did not deserve, right? We say that and what's, what can be the, the thing that happens in our own hearts then is we go, oh man, I must be pretty great. Or I'm at least better than, than that person or I'm better than this person. I, I deserved that at least a little bit. Like I could see why God would save me, right? There's times where we get in our heads and we think because God did this, we now feel like we deserve it. And Paul says, wait a minute, you better evaluate yourself correctly and you better give yourself an evaluation. And and this is difficult. I think as humans, at times we kind of get stuck on one end of that or the other. So we'll get to one side and be like, oh, I'm, I'm great, right? I'm so much better than them. I deserve this or whatever. And then there's the other side where maybe we'll end up and we'll be like, ah, I'm the worst. I can't do this. I struggle, whatever. And we have a hard time evaluating ourselves. I remember in college, uh, my Greek class, of, it was a rough class. Greek is hard. And I, the, we knew going into this class, we actually got to give ourselves our grade at the end. And so it was a much different evaluation. Like if maybe you experience this in class at some point, high school, even middle school or elementary school, whatever. Maybe there's a subject that you at some point were like, you didn't really have to put that much work in to get a decent grade. For whatever reason, for some of us, math clicks or, or whatever else, and you really don't have to try that hard, and you just kind of pay attention in class, and you do the homework. You're like, all right, I'm going to get a good grade in this. And even though you didn't really have to put forth much effort, you still got a good grade. You didn't really have to try very hard. All of a sudden, with this class, it's the only class I've ever been able to give my own grade in. It was based on the amount of work I was putting in. Because no one in Greek just shows up and goes, oh, I know this, right? We all have, it's learning a new language and learning how to write it and learning how to read. And there's, Greek is, oh, it's just very, it's very difficult to deal with. And so we had to evaluate that. And when you really start to dig in, you start to go, okay, well, how much effort did I put in this? Did, was it worth it? I will tell you this. I put more effort into that class than I put into any other class. Because it was difficult, but because, because I also wanted to get to the end and be able to say, I deserve a passing grade on this. And when we really start to evaluate ourselves, it's not easy to do. It's a very difficult process. But when we really start to look in the mirror and say, what am I deserving of? And we recognize what God gives us. It changes the perspective we have about ourselves. And Paul goes on in the next two verses, verses four and five. And he says, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a particular function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. And this is, this is where the friction can kind of happen. And this, is why, this is why Paul says, hey, evaluate yourself first. Because there are, there are many people who will say, I love Jesus. I don't want to belong to that group of people. 
I don't want to be seen as that kind of person. I don't want to know that. I don't want them to have a say in what goes on in my life. I don't want to belong there. And here's what I think is true. We all want to belong. We want to belong somewhere, but we will fight to maintain our autonomy. We'll fight to say, hey, I, I, I want to be a part of this. I want to know Jesus. And the, the vertical relationship we want to say is, is great. But then we look at the others and we, we look horizontally and we just go, I don't really want anything to do with them. I'm not interested in it. Or, or if, we're, if we're not that quite that far, we might just say, but I don't want them to really have an influence on my life. I don't really want them to know me. And yet when we go back to this idea where we look at how God sets up unity, he says, I, I want you to be one. And I want you to be one as the Father and I are one. And so when we look around at our horizontal relationships and we say, I, I, I don't want that to be the case, we're kind of looking at what Jesus prayed for and says, I don't want what Jesus has for me. Continuing on in, in Romans 12, verses 6 through 7, says, In his grace, God has given us different gifts, doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. Verse 8, if your gift is encouraging others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. I've spent a lot of time over the years looking at these passages, and one thing popped out to me different than it ever has before, and it's this simple idea. We cannot live effective lives as followers of Jesus outside of community. Now, that phrase I would agree with any other time, but here's what I realized it meant. It is impossible to fulfill and use the gifts God has given us without someone on the receiving end. It's impossible. God gives us all gifts, right? When we decide to follow Jesus and we get the Holy Spirit, we get given gifts, Gifts we have the opportunities to use to serve others. People outside church, but people inside church too. But there's, there's, there needs to be someone else who's on the receiving end of the gift we're giving them. Right? You can buy a gift for somebody and put it in your closet and say you're going to give it to them. But if you never give it to them, they never get it. Right? They never realize the value. Um, one of the examples of this, you give you a little peek behind the curtain, okay? Every week, two to three times, I come into this room, this empty room, and I practice my sermon. Like you are all here. If you saw the video, you'd think I was a maniac because I do it just like you're here. I, I promise. Like I get louder. I try and do it when no one else is around because I get embarrassed, which makes no sense. Because if I'm doing it to an empty room and one person hears me and I'm going to do it in front of all of you, it makes no sense. But that's just how I work. But here's the thing. I, I believe I've been given the gift of teaching and preaching. I love to do it. It fills me up. I'm excited to do it. It's great. But here's the thing. If none of you show up and I only ever do it to empty chairs, it doesn't get fulfilled. Like the point is to say, I want to look at scripture and I want to help us pursue Jesus better and understand scripture and know how to live this out and whatever. But if no one else is there to do it, if I just said, oh, I'm a great teacher and preacher, but I've never done it in front of people and I never will, I'm not using my gift. So we have to be in community with one another in order to live effective lives as followers of Jesus. Listen, we cannot live effective lives as followers of Jesus and just live in our house all the time. We've got to connect with people. We've got to say, I'm going to give myself to these community, to the community, to my community, to my church community, to my school community, whatever. There has to be a connection there. And then lastly, in Romans 12, verses 9 and 10, says, Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. And take delight in honoring 
each other. Verses 11 through 13, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in your confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. I think the beginning of uh, verse 9 there, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. I know that there's times, just as humans, right? You wake up on a Sunday morning. You wake up on any morning where you have to, you have to people. <laughs> like, I don't want to people today. I'm not interested. I don't want to do it. So when you have to people and you don't want to people, what do you do? You show up and you put on a smile and you go, mm, two more hours so I can get out of here. What does Paul say? I, I think it's, it's not unique to our culture that people put up a facade and we fake nice. Even Paul, 2,000 years ago, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. And this is where we have to be willing to say, I'm going to use my gifts even when it's not convenient. I'm going to invest in community even when it's not what I want to do. I'm going to open up to people. Like, that's what I said. I'm going to open up or I'm going to be there for people even when I, I don't feel like it today. If people knew what I dealt with yesterday, then I'll deal with this, and then I have to figure this out. This is... This is hard, but Paul says, don't do it. And then he ends verse 13, right? Always be eager to practice hospitality. Always be ready to build up people. I really want to camp on this idea as we wrap up the conversation today. Like, camp on this idea of of belonging. We all want to belong somewhere. We all want home to be somewhere. But what does it take for that to be the case? There's a few things I think have to be the case if we're going to Belong, and the first thing is belonging requires a mutual commitment. We don't feel like we belong anywhere where there's not a mutual commitment from the other people we want to belong to. If the other people don't like make us feel like we belong or they're not committed to us, we do not feel like we are belonging somewhere. And so when there's an idea of, of whether it's church or whether it's anything else, if we're going to belong somewhere, there has to be this mutual commitment where others around us say, we are committed to you just as much as you are committed to us. And then we all feel this idea of belonging. Now, let me, let me just set the stage with one more thing before we kind of dive into this. Here, here's what I want you to get to. This is kind of a side note, but I think it's important. As I did some research for this conversation, there were, there's kind of groups that kind of concentric circles that kind of get bigger as we think about who our community is. And if you're going to have a close-knit community, people that know you better than anybody else and you can share anything with, that group is typically three to five people. So three to five people know your secrets, know what's going on. You feel comfortable calling them in the middle of the night, whatever. Three to five people, that's the goal. You go out from there, it's about 50. You can kind of call that a village, right? People you normally do life with, a lot of family members in that probably. People you interact with on a regular basis. They might not know your deep, dark secret, but they're, they're close, right? They're, they're right there. And then there's another group that's 150 people. It kind of gets bigger. Get beyond that, and it's, it's too big. I mean, you can have acquaintances, but they're not, you're not really in community with these people. So I say all that to say, as we walk through this idea of belonging, I'm being realistic. I'm not saying that everyone in this room and everyone that's not here today or everyone that will join this year, whatever, has to be best, 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 best buddies, right, and know all our secrets in that. But what I am saying is there is a desire to say we're going to have a mutual commitment that we're going to serve and uplift each other. Maybe I don't know your deepest, darkest secret, but if I can use my gift to help you, I'm going to do that, and you're going to do the same. And so there's this, there's this mutual commitment. Here's the second thing. Belonging requires a willingness to be open. I, I think this is unique to our time, but I think what, one of the things that stops this is we can get into the trap of where we think 
online community is a substitute for really being known. And, and here's what I mean by that. I remember when Facebook first came out, you had to have a college email address to sign up. So I think I was, I think I was a senior in high school when it came out. And I remember thinking, oh, I wanted to join it. I had friends who were a little bit older who had just graduated, and I wanted to join it, but you couldn't unless you had a .edu email. You had to have that. So then the next year comes along, I get into college, I join, and it's like, oh, this is great, whatever. And you just watch your friends climb, like the amount of friends I had. And I remember at one point thinking, oh, this is great. Like, I'm going to get to 1,000 friends. And I did. And I, maybe I hit like 1,100 or something like that. And it was like, oh, this is so fun, right? And then I realized, I was thinking, oh, I know this many people. This is so fun. And then I went, I don't know these people. I met some of these people once. Like, I don't really understand who they are. And all of a sudden, we got into this, this new thing, got introduced to our culture, right, where we could look and say how many followers we have, how many likes we're getting, whatever. And we started to think, this is who we know, or this is who we're in community with. And the reality is, it's not. But the other reason that this is tempting is because we don't have to be open with people we just know on the internet. I can say, oh, I know all these people, and we talk, and we message, and we whatever. But I don't have to be open with them. I don't have to share what's really going on in life or, or when that really happens and someone kind of posts out there that's something really deep and, and, need, and needing help and, and whatever. It's kind of like, well, what do we do with this? Because we are not a community when we just exist online. It's not the community where we're supposed to get all of our edification from, that we're supposed to go with our first need for help. It's supposed to be the people that we know closely and we do life with and we invest in one another and there's a mutual connection, but there's also a willingness to be open. And so when we get invited to something like this, we have to be willing to say, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what's going on. This is what I need help with. And when there's that mutual connection between each other or with the group, then when we're open with one another, it's, it's received with a welcoming a hug or a, I can help with that or an I'll be there for you. And the third thing is belonging requires a recognition of our need for others. And this is difficult because we like to do things on our own. And I think that this is even true, that loneliness persists because we choose surviving alone rather than thriving together. And when we think about it, we, we don't like to have to ask for help. We don't like to have to depend on other people. We, we'd like to just be able to do it on our own. We don't want to be even inconvenience other people. We don't want to be that. We just want to do it on our own. But we, can, we allow loneliness to persist when we choose that doing it by myself and trying just to survive rather than doing it together and thriving. Um, if you pay attention to football at all, uh, you know that this week two coaches changed places in the same day, which was really weird, right? Nick Saban and Bill Belichick both went to, if you don't know who they are, just tune me out for a second and then come back later, right? They left, they're located, Nick Saban retires, easily the best college football coach ever. Like that conversation is, is a very short one. He's the best ever. Then Bill Belichick, he leaves New England. He's the best NFL coach ever, by all means. Like, the, these two guys, it's, it's very rare that two guys in their profession are, are the guys. Like, and there's not very much, like, conversation on who's the best. They were the best. And, and Belichick will probably still be the best. But here's what I know. You, we talked to them. If we had a chance to have a conversation with them, to interview them, whatever, and we said, what was the key to your success? Neither one of them would ever say, well, it was me. I just did it. I did it on my own didn't need anybody else, no one else influenced me, I'm just that good. 
right? Neither one of them would say that. They would say, well, I had coaches, and I had people that influenced me. I had people that taught me, and I had players, and I had coordinators, and the players made plays on the field, and the coordinators made calls. And, and over the course of all this time, I had so many people that helped me. Two of the best ever would never say they just did it on their own. And yet we will at times say, it's best for me to just do it on my own. We know that that's not true. And yet with the temptation is, I just need to do it by myself. Because I don't want to make the commitment. I don't want to be open. And I think it's better just for me to do it myself because I don't want to have to need others. But remember what I said earlier, right? If God's plan requires community, Satan will always pursue disunity. And honestly, I think the temptation comes down to this, that our temptation will always be to avoid the germs, the baggage, and the inconvenience. Just being honest with you, right? We think about this. We have people coming over to our house. How many germs are coming with them? We think about this. This is the world we live in now. I'll still invite you over. You can bring your germs, okay? But we think about this. And it's easy to say, I don't want to go to the place where the germs are. I don't want to go to the place where it's going to get inconvenient. I don't want to do this. I don't want to worry about, like, do I want people to come to my house or just going to bring baggage with them? Right? Who's going to walk in and just dump their bags all over my floor and now I have to deal with it? Not literally, figuratively though, right? I have my own stuff going on. I don't want to deal with their stuff. And even the inconvenience, right? I, we might even look at ourselves and say, I don't want to be the inconvenient one. I don't want to be the dumper of the baggage. So I'm not going to do it. All of these are hurdles that are easy. They can easily get into our, our minds. And they will stop us from building the relationships we're called to have. And none of them are even inherently wrong. But they are roadblocks road that will be used to keep that oneness we talked about from John 16 and 17 from happening. And sometimes we just have to look at life and say, bring on the baggage. Because we all need people. And when we allow these things to get in the way and we isolate ourselves because of these reasons, we're not going to build the community we need. And it draws us into a place where we start to feel lonely because these issues get in the way. An article came out uh, this week by one of the authors I really appreciate. Her name's Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin, and we've used resources from her before. And she wrote an article that came out this week on loneliness in the church. I was like, great, more material. I'll sit down and read this, right? And she said this at the end of the article, and I thought it was, it was really, really interesting. She just said this, that the loneliness pandemic is severe. We Christians know the cure, and we are disobeying Jesus if we fail to administer it. It's such a unique opportunity when, when those outside the church world go, we've got a huge problem. And we can literally look at them and say, we've got the cure. We know what you need. The question is, are we doing it well? Because when we do it well, we can invite others in to do it well. That's the key. If we don't do it well, they're not going to want to be a part of it. So when, when we do it well, and then we can invite people in and say, hey, would you, you want to be part of our community? Like, we do it really well. Would you like to come in and be a part of it? Would you like your loneliness to go away because we've got a place where you can belong and we'll commit to love you and care for you and, and, and you commit to that too and we'll work together and we'll be there for one another. We'll tolerate the germs and the baggage and the inconvenient and we will desire to do life together. And we've got the opportunity to tell people we've got the answer 
but we've got to do it well first. And so I, I just want to challenge our thinking on this. Like, it, it's easy. It's easy to let things get in the way. It's easy to say, I don't feel like it. I don't want a people right now. But we know that it's better. Yes, is it easier not to? Yeah, it's easier not to in the moment. But stack that pattern of disconnection on top of disconnection on top of disconnection. What happens? Loneliness. We see this. And we have to make the decision not to allow it to be the case. I'm going to invite the band to come up. Um, and I, I have one challenge for us this week, okay? Really tangible. I'm going to see if you guys will jump in on it with me. This week, I just want us to choose three people. Three people. One being inside the church or a, or a follower of Jesus you know, okay? One has to be. The other two don't. The other two can be anybody, And I just want this simple thing to happen, okay? Text, email, if you're someone who likes to call people, call them. Here's all you have to do. Reach out and just say, hey, I'm thankful you're my friend. And I just wanted to ask you if there's anything I can pray for. Just say, hey, I'm thankful you're my friend. I'm thankful that you're a part of my life. Can I pray for you somehow? Here's what that does, right? Especially if that person has no idea I'm telling you to do that right now. You're going to show up at a time when they're not expecting it. And you're just going to tell them that you value them. How would you feel if someone else did that for you? Hey, I was just thinking about you. I love you. This, this actually happened to me this morning. My friend Andy, out of nowhere, just said, I'm praying for you today as you speak. And he was too. I had no idea that, idea that was coming. But I got in my truck, looked at my phone, made me smile. Do that for somebody. Say, hey, I'm thankful for you. I love you. Can I pray for you this week? And let's start that. It's simple, right? It's so easy but it adds value to someone's week. Let's start there and see where we can go. Would you pray with me? Jesus, this prayer that you uh, prayed for us in John 16 and 17 is, is a tall order. It's not something that is very easy to do. To be one with each other, to be one with you, is a task that will take a lot of work. And it's a lot of effort and it's a lot of intentionality. But we know that that's what you've called us to do. And if you're praying it for us, then we know that it's important. And I ask that we would have this space where we can be honest with with each other. We would be committed to one another. That we would be open with one another. We would be okay with the fact that we need others in our lives. I pray that the things like germs and baggage and inconvenience would, would not be something that sits in the way, but that we would kind of kick those aside and say, I care more about being invested in the people around me than I do about having an easy evening. God, I just pray that we would just lean on one another and that that would be a typical thing for us to do as part of GFC. I also pray for these three people we're thinking about just texting or email or call or whatever you want to do. God, I pray that you would send us the right ones that just need that. On a, mor- on a morning or an afternoon where it's just a struggle, that we'd be able just to show up and brighten their day just by saying we care about them and we want to pray for them. God, I ask that you continue to work in our, in our hearts and lives in this, that you would, I pray the same thing that Jesus prayed, keep, keep the evil one away, keep the temptation out of this, that we would really invest in our community together. We're thankful for the people we get to do that with on a regular basis. In Jesus' name, amen.